Hello, beautiful people. In today's episode, I get the pleasure of speaking to Jack Butcher, and Jack is an incredible, incredible follow on Twitter, but he's also a graphic designer, an entrepreneur. He's the founder of Visualize Value, which is a community which creates and helps people create content and build independent income on the internet. In this conversation, we spoke about how we created the graphics for Eric Jorgensen's The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. We spoke about the power of the internet, and we got deep on his story, Jack's story, that is. So overall, it was a jam-packed episode, a lot of, lot of value here, no pun intended. And there were a couple of technical difficulties, which you'll notice if you pay close attention to this episode, but if you're able to... Just get past those technical difficulties. You will find a lot of value in this episode. As always, if you enjoy this episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. Love your feedback. Love what you have to say about the episode, positive or negative. I would love to hear about it. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you for listening. And let's get right to it. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. So for people who aren't familiar with Jack Butcher, tell everyone just a little bit about yourself. Sure. So... um started my career as a designer after a doing a design degree in the UK that's where I grew up I moved to New York shortly after I graduated university to take a job as a designer at a small agency in the city did that for a couple of years bounced around a bunch of different jobs, uh, different size companies, agencies, in-house for tech companies, worked at Bloomberg for a little while. Uh, After about seven or eight years of that, I decided to start my own agency. Uh, After about a year of that, I figured out that that was not the thing that I was ultimately after. Uh, While it was a little bit, it brought a little bit of financial independence, it was definitely, uh, definitely brought zero time independence. So after struggling with the agency model for about a year or so with some corporate clients that I'd met in a previous life, I started to work on narrowing my services and building products and have been working for the last uh, 18 months or so on a brand called Visualize Value, which is um, essentially uh, a productized version of all the things I learned across a lot of those jobs. So uh, how to visually articulate concepts that don't typically have a visual representation, which is a skill I learned in pitching business at advertising agencies and helping technology companies explain what they do in a visual, memorable way. And um, that's turned into kind of a consulting operation on one side and then uh, a set of products on the other side where trying to help people learn these skills and also um, the journey that I'd been on from that transition from the crazy agency life to having a product and a brand is something that I'm keen to help other people learn and uh, get on that journey as well. Yeah, man. And I want to dive right into 
visualize value because from where my perspective is, it seems like it's just one of those things that everybody loves. I've never heard anybody say anything bad about it. And I've been on the phone with numerous people who follow me on Twitter and they're like, you guys, you have to check out this visualized value. It's the real deal. It's awesome. It's amazing. And so my question to you is, why do you think people love visualized value so much? That's a great question. And I wouldn't say it's universally uh, loved. I think there's something really interesting about um, it's kind of a very... um, It's very polarizing to the extent that if you don't love it, you won't even engage with it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea that it really quickly identifies a certain type of person and it's very referable among people that have, you know, friendship groups or um, professional networks that value the same things as they do or operate in the same spaces that they do. I think I would credit that again, this is anecdotal evidence to how it's spread quite um, rapidly, just the fact that, you know, you, the social environment and the, the, the ability to create something that can spread really quickly. And um, something that I think is, uh, it's like a byproduct of people signaling their agreement with an idea, which tends to seek out like very similar people. And it's just so, um, I think the, within two or three seconds, you can identify whether or not it's for you or not. And I think the people that do uh, value it, excuse the pun, stick around and people who don't get it, just scroll straight past it. So I think that would be um, a high level of why I think it's resonated. And I'm imagining the people that you're referencing are in in a similar space to you or you have similar goals or working on similar projects. And these ideas tend to apply to, you know, people building things, entrepreneurs, internet um, creators, anybody who's trying to move something forward. There's, uh, it seems to resonate universally with people who are trying to build something, which is, you know, a great type of person to attract and, and be around. No doubt about it. And you've been on this journey now of building Visualized Value for over a year now. You started in, in 2019, correct? And... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what has surprised you the most about building it? That's a great question. So initially, it was a attempt at narrowing the type of services I was offering as a freelance designer. So going from being everything to everyone and just saying, you know, I have a set of design skills that I can apply to any industry, any product, any problem that needs to be solved, which ultimately ends up in, uh, you know, you're just taking on whatever business walks through the door versus kind of creating demand on the front end by really owning a visual style and an approach that sorts your clients for you. So I had that thesis when I began and thought that it would work just based on um, gut instinct, I think. Uh, but I, I was surprised at the extent to which that does work. And what I've discovered through working one-on-one with a lot of people is really what people are looking for permission to do is to uh, uncomplicate their message. So people 
like seeking permission to say less and present things more simply. I think there's, you know, depending on your professional background, there is a tendency to really overcomplicate things or to shy away from putting something forward that is so simple that it feels like it took you five minutes to do it. Uh, so one of the things that's been really refreshing about the type of people I've worked with is that, um, that has actually been more of the value proposition, even than the output. It's like giving people permission to say less is super surprising and, you know, really pleasant process to go through as well as letting people get rid of a lot of the stuff that they've been carrying that isn't actually doing any, doing them any favors. That's a really interesting insight because, I think we maybe by school or or maybe it's just by social structure mm-hmm. we we want to you know appear smart and we want to expand and and have a lot to say but what your what your visualizations do is your illustrations are so simple and they're so easy to understand and anyone can understand them and it reminds me almost of what people say about writing and your writing is is very similar it's straight to the point and your your visualizations and illustrations are also straight to the point and it it's just that's how we're as as a writer i'm coming from the background of of understanding that you need to have your writing be so simple that a fifth grader could understand it right and that's mm-hmm. what your illustrations do it appears from my perspective yeah. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment. And I think your point about school is interesting. It's like you you go from trying to fill up the page by any means necessary because it, it you know gives the illusion that you've done the work versus you turning in one paragraph that's just incredibly well researched, constructed, thought through because you've you know the actual effort is removing all the superfluous information that isn't actually getting the point across. I think as a society, as communicators, that is a really important uh, cornerstone of being a great communicator is to stop talking when you have nothing else to say. We don't really do that for the most Mm -hmm. part. Yeah, and it's so funny that you say that because I found from doing this podcast that when I listened to the first few I'm like, oh my God, I was just going on and on and rambling and wasn't giving the guests <laughs> enough time to speak. But as I've gotten, I'll, I've done more episodes, I've realized, okay, you just have to shut up. And it's really interesting how that is true for writing, illustrations, podcasting, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's a real counterintuitive truth, as most are. Yeah, so. What I have right in front of me right now is the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. And awesome. Yeah, and this book is is so awesome. And you obviously did the the illustrations for this book. And so talk me through the process of what you did with this book and and why you were so forthcoming to to give your illustrations and also what your thought process was while you were you were giving them. Sure. So to rewind back to how it came about, the original intent of Visualize Value as a content exercise was to attract um, people that needed help articulating their value proposition as businesses originally. So 
Uh, I'd done that on a per client basis a couple of times, you know, help people articulate how a piece of software works or how a supply chain is put together. All this stuff is like not very compelling for somebody that isn't in that industry. So the real um, inflection point in the content on the front end was making these ideas that are universally useful, um, admired and uh, circulated visual. So Naval was actually a um, kind of a remote mentor of mine as I was going through these evolutions of my business. So I'm consuming a lot of what he's written and those ideas, kind of spitting those ideas back out in visual form. And it wasn't until maybe probably nine months after I started, maybe even longer, that I'd had all of this material, uh, essentially these notes that I'd been making as I, as I was evolving my business, I was putting back out as these social assets. And, um, you know, a few times you catch the attention of a large account on Twitter, whether it was Naval or someone else in those circles and the, you know, the image gets retweeted and you get a little bit more exposure that way. And retroactively, I think about that idea as this reverse influence, right? So you're doing something, you haven't asked for permission to do it. You just value this person's perspective and you put time into, you know, adding an additional layer of context to their ideas. And sometimes you get rewarded for that, or you always get rewarded regardless of whether you get the recognition because you go through the process, you become a, a better practitioner. But in the few occasions where you get publicly rewarded, you attract, uh, you know, a some of the fan base of that person or a lot of people who think that that way of thinking or that mental model is valuable. So the audience begins to kind of emulate the thinkers that are the input for the content. So I saw Eric, Eric Georgensen, the author of the book, uh, I didn't know him and he didn't know me. And I think I saw his tweet that said, should I do this book? Um, you can go to Navalmanac.com and read some of his blog posts about how he got the project started. But essentially he said, um, you know, I have this idea. I'm going to compile all of Naval's ideas into a book. Would anyone be interested? Launched a poll. The results were crazy. So he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. Naval replied to his tweet. He's like, happy to provide you with anything you need, blah, blah, blah. And then a couple of days later, I just reached out to Eric. I said, Hey, I've got, you know, 15, 20 illustrations of Naval's ideas that I've been putting together for the last six to nine months or so. If you are interested in including them with the book, I would love to, you know, I would love to be uh, of service. And initially he was like, yeah, let me get back to you. And he was busy, obviously compiling everything. And a few months later, he reached back out. He's like, yeah, let's revisit this. We got on the phone. Um, He sent me an invite to a Google document manuscript of this thing. It was, you know, maybe 60% of the way done at that point. And he was like, just look through it and see, you know, where you think there's an opportunity for ideas to be illustrated. So I just printed that thing out, sat with it for a day, went through a few times. And some of the ideas that I'd already illustrated would, would map back onto this. And there were a few other great, you know, visual a few other great ideas that could be represented visually in the book that were original and exclusive to the book design. And then we just, you know, went back and forth, collaborated remotely, never met each other. And, um, 
they were just uh, yeah they ended up in the in the final version of the book i met eric a couple months ago and we were driving across the states and, and stopped for some barbecue with him and his girlfriend and uh yeah man a, a incredible friendship off the back of that and obviously an amazing piece of work that he did putting that book together that is now you know it's, it's kind of phenomenal that with a uh, with the distribution that it has it's like in every corner of the earth now just crazy this story just brings me so much joy because it it talks and it it highlights the power of the internet switching gears a little bit i want to take it back to your childhood because you've had an interest in art for or at least it seems like you've been doing work in art for the past 10 years, probably longer, mm-hmm. based on your LinkedIn. So is art something you always gravitated towards as a child? And I'm very curious about what your childhood was like. Interestingly enough, no. I would not describe myself as like a RT kid or even a maybe a creative kid. Um, my younger years were... I, I, like no discernible hobby really which is kind of fascinating looking back i think my desire my interest in design and this is kind of an underwhelming answer came from i did in the uk you do work experience when you're 16 so they send you off to a place of work for a week while you're still at school and Basically, the options I had in front of me were like, you know, go and work in the bus station, go and work in a hairdresser's, go and work as, you know, an apprentice mechanic in a garage. I was like, that all sounds pretty, you know, it doesn't not not sound like how I'd like to spend the next 40 or 50 years. So I had a cousin who worked at a graphic design agency, like, you know, two, three hours north of where I grew up. And I said to my parents at the time, I was like, oh, do you think... I could ask him if I could go up and, and work with him for a, a week. And they're like, yeah, yeah, do it. So uh, that was kind of my first exposure to that world. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, this is like, this is not a bad way to earn a living. You know, like you get to sit in front of the computer all day, mess about, come up with whatever you want to come up with and, and you know, have some creative justification for solving a problem it's like it scratches an itch of you know solving a different problem every day which i think was more of the draw for me initially is my dad's an engineer so i think there's a little bit of that like i like you know played with tools and build things on a small scale and then having you know exposure to the possibility that you could make a career out of something like that i think Again, this is like retroactively, and I haven't done a lot of reflection on why this might be, but I, if I had to you know, use my gut, I think that was kind of the turning point where I was like, wow, if I now put that focus into my studies going forward, so at the point I was 16, 17, if I spend the next few years studying this subject, maybe I have a shot at uh, doing this professionally and I don't have to you know, lay underneath a car for my entire career because my part-time jobs were you know pretty brutal as a kid like you know paper round i worked in industrial shredders uh i worked on the production line at honda for a little while so i'd done all these sort of brutal jobs and just the notion that you could make a decent living like sitting in front of a computer all day was pretty foreign to me when i was younger 
And when I kind of had a taste of that, I think that's what probably planted the seed. And I was like, okay, I'm going to look into this graphic design thing. And, you know, that, that kind of stumbled into that career as a result of that realization, I think. And that was pretty rare at that time, right? You're around 35, I would guess. Is that is that somewhat accurate? I'm 30, just turned 32. 32. So that was 16 years ago. We're looking at 2004. Not a lot of people were making a living off the internet clicking buttons and and uh, on the computer. So, But you had someone in your life where you could be like, oh, it's possible. And so you never had a limiting belief from that perspective, right? Yeah. So not even so much the internet. I'm not sure how much of their output was digital. Like mm-hmm. just the notion of designing things that get printed, whether it's, you know, catalogs or uh, t-shirts or just this, the service of design as a, um, source of income to me, it was like, wow, this is like, you know, a fun thing to do and get paid for. I'd grown up with the assumption that work had to be this dull, um, laborious, like prison essentially. And discovering that I was like, wow, I think this is like, um, this could be, an, this could offer an alternate reality to that assumption. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in doing research for this conversation, I I saw you mentioned in one podcast transcript that you had a mentor that was a polymath. Was it this this situation when you you were 16 or was it someone further down the line that you were referring to if you remember? No, so it was the guy that offered me a job in New York initially. So when I moved to the States in 2010, um, this guy who owned a owned and operated a creative studio in West Chelsea in Manhattan was, uh, like, you know, took a complete gamble on me. I had to like pay lawyers to get me a visa and all that good stuff. And all I had to show was really my, you know, PDF portfolio from university. And because he was running a small shop, I think it was, it was a function of his background, but also product of necessity he was a designer writer strategist you know like dangerous enough in all of those areas to essentially be a one-man shop and i think you know if you go back to your question before about what you get exposed to earlier in life that reduces your um, the limits that you hold around certain situations i think you know that ultimately translated into me a few years later being like yeah i could you know i could take a shot at running my own business like how how difficult can it be i've seen somebody uh who taught me a ton was able to sustain it um there's definitely that um that definitely plays a huge part in in helping you take the leap right the fact that you've seen it accomplished before and if you've seen it in person it's all the more powerful than you know youtube videos or a blog post of someone describing something you sat next to somebody who's done it then uh it it becomes a lot more real absolutely and and so my follow-up question to that story is how exactly did you convince that guy to hire you and fly you basically across the atlantic ocean do you remember anything that you you did yeah, I had a portfolio. Uh, I mean, the guy was, um, I think that's another interesting um, byproduct of having a skill that you can 
produce something with by yourself. So if you're a designer, you can produce a body of work. You don't need to rely on anybody. You don't need a job. All you need is a computer to sit down in front of and make stuff. And that's a huge that's a huge advantage when you're looking for work, right? You don't have to go in the room and say, "Yeah, you know, I'm a you know I'm highly motivated and I'm a problem solver and my hobbies are running." But like nobody cares, man. It's like, show me your work. If I like your work, I think I could like I basically think you're an arbitrage opportunity for me. You can make work that I can sell for ten times what it costs me to buy it from you. I'll give you a job. It's as simple as that. And you know, this guy just uh, made the decision based on a PDF and a single phone call. <laughs> That's pretty crazy if you think about it, but it makes complete sense. And it it goes into the thesis of and the importance of showing your work on the internet. And mm -hmm. this is something, I don't know if you coined this term or I've heard in, in relation to you, but the importance and, and like almost as if your work on the internet, your website, the things you do, that almost is your resume. And so talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that concept. Yeah, so I think right now we're at a point in time where that's more relevant than ever. The, the ability to prove your output and your capability remotely is incredibly uh, it's like incredibly high leverage skill and ability right now. The notion that the design skill set really uh, values that I think is is again another advantage looking back that has played a huge role in all of the uh, risks that I've taken. So I, essentially the, the higher quality your portfolio, your reputation, the more risk you can take or risk in inverted commas. So I had eight, nine jobs in the span of seven or eight years in New York because I would get bored or another opportunity would come up. And at no point was I like, oh, if I leave, I'll never get another job again. Because every single thing I did, I took with me, you know, three or four projects that prove uh, I have a certain skill, I have exposure to a certain problem, or I've worked in a certain industry with a certain caliber of client. So my body of work is really independent of um, those institutions. Like I wouldn't have been able to do it without them, but at the same time, you can really demonstrate your skill set with a, you know, an object that you can point to. So this notion of building in public, uh, this is not even building in public. This is proof of work because I'm not even publishing that. I'm just taking it to interviews or sending it by email or whatever else. That whole build in public thing is a, uh, a an idea that builds even on top of the notion of just having a body of work that you can point to when somebody asks you what you're capable of. And that has worked for me so many times in the past that I think I... I'm a huge proponent of it for whatever you do, leverage that principle as an insurance policy at the very least. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And it's exactly what I'm trying to do with my own website. And I, I'm so grateful to have started it because it shows exactly what I'm up to. Let me ask you though, if you could not have the skill of graphic design and art and that was completely mm -hmm. off the table. Where do you think you would focus your talents in 2020? 
I think. I mean, I'm I'm really fascinated by online education. I think the ability to um, help people leverage the internet to build this body of work and this independent stream of income is something that I have um, like a I think a unique approach to based on the graphic design, like being able to augment it with graphic design. But even if I didn't have that skill set, I think I would still be working in this area because it's just so um one it's like incredibly rewarding to help people like and see people's like the cogs turning in people's heads like light bulbs going off is really uh an amazing way to spend your time and two i think um my other tendencies or skill sets are really like writing is something that i've I've kind of fallen into and maybe even has overtaken the amount of time I spend in design. Just really this notion of storing your knowledge and experience is this very, um, just such a high leverage uh, concept that didn't really strike me as useful until very recently. And why did that start striking you as useful, that writing was so valuable as a skill? Sure. So I think it's it comes down to this idea of transitioning from doing the same thing every day as an employee to building this library of assets that you can leverage as an entrepreneur or an employee. But let's just use the starkest example for um, example's sake. This idea of your portfolio, you could think of that as a designer. And that's where I, you know, obviously that's the background I come from. But your portfolio is this body of work that demonstrates how you think, uh, demonstrates your ability to communicate. And, you know, there is no um, there is no industry, there is no vocation that doesn't benefit from better communication skills and the ability to uh, just continually compound the value of this body of work that you have out there is super rewarding. It's like if you do 10 minutes of work today, it's not like the clock resets tomorrow. You come back to it and you build on it again. So it's really just this, I think the the terminology is almost getting, uh, there's a lot of overlap in all different spaces. It's more of a a way of thinking than any given um, discipline is like, are you, building a body of work that is that is increasing in value day by day or are you like hitting the reset on the clock every morning and you know selling your time and not capturing any of that value or that expertise in a way that serves you down the road does that make sense absolutely and you basically just explained a tweet that i wanted to bring up which was from you that i loved it was turn ideas into assets turn assets into attention, turn attention into capital, turn capital into time, repeat. And I just thought that was so brilliant. And and you just gave the explanation for it just now. So that was well done on your part. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's a, even on a tiny scale, that makes a ton of sense. And it doesn't feel like it's making sense in the moment on day one, two, three, even. But if you like... When you look back at it, it's like the conversation we're having today is like these little moments that were these catalysts or these points of transition that you don't recognize at the time, 
but uh, the the principle that remained true throughout is like store your experience in an asset that you can refer back to, whether that you're using that to leverage uh, yourself into a better job, whether you're using that to explain something to a client that you don't want to explain 50 times, little concepts like that, that just, um, just alleviate the burden of repeating yourself, whatever it might be, whether you're building technology or making content, there's really, once you kind of cross that threshold and the light bulb goes off in your head, it's very hard to go back, right? I, I like to liken it to when you when your parents tell you or when you figure out that um, Santa Claus isn't real, <laughs> you get to this point where you're just like, that mental, that, that assumption is just broken in your head. There's no way you're going back, right? And as soon as you cross that threshold with this like asset versus time um, approach to your work, the same is true. It's like every time you're spending your time without creating an asset, you'll kick yourself when you're like laying in bed that night. It's like I wasted hours today doing something that I'm never going to see a return on in the future. Yeah. And the thing is that's interesting though is – that you were, you might have not been actually building assets at the time when you were working for other people, but you were building the skill, right? Which allowed you to eventually scale your work very easily. Not easily yeah, per so, se. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. And I think, I think, again, to refer back to like the portfolio principle of graphic design, where I had an advantage early on is even my like terrible school projects, there was a output there, right? So even this terrible thing that I could see that I was slowly getting better at, there's some kind of output, there is a result that is left behind from my effort. So I did carry that stuff forward. And I think another interesting um, misconception is that people in different fields don't think they can do that, but that's not true, right? If you're a writer, there are like, um, constructs that you use or there are um, you know ways in which you take notes or how you summarize a subject that you're producing product even if you don't know you're producing it at the beginning of your journey so yes I agree that I wasn't consciously doing a lot of that stuff but I just happened to be in a field where there was a byproduct and I think that recognizing that earlier may have even increased the speed at which I could move so the idea of um, taking a lesson from everything you do, whether it, you know, whether it translates to a later opportunity or not, is you, know, you won't find that out until later. But just having that slight shift in mindset that every single like, challenge you approach or every single task you complete can produce this like, byproduct that is eventually going to help you accelerate your career or whatever it is you're doing. Do you think we don't understand this naturally because compounding is so difficult for us to grasp? We're used to producing one thing at an equaling one. But if you do that and build enough assets, one plus one plus one equals five or, or ten, you know? Right. And so do you think it's because we have such a hard time grasping compounding that people don't do this? Yeah, I'm going to pull up a quote the that um... – that perfectly explains this. There's a guy called 
uh, Albert Allen Bartlett, he was a professor of physics at the University of Colorado. He said the greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. And I think you're dead on. There's some instinctual or um, there's some like biological limit on understanding these things that live on after we do or these like mathematical concepts that don't really apply to our like physical circumstances. So you someone else explains this as like we're linear creatures in an exponential world and the internet is like just like a steroid example of that idea right the fact that you can put one video on youtube and you know if a certain type of person picks it up or talks about it you're elevated overnight to having an audience of a million people let's say right tiktok is a great example of that and like at what point in history would that ever be possible or would anyone ever experience anything remotely close to something like that? I think, you know, we're only just beginning to see um, the result of what a system like that does to um, your work as an individual or your, you know, your company, whatever it might be. There's just a, a huge, and, you know, I think, experiencing this myself on a tiny scale over the last 18 months has really locked in this concept in my mind where uh, the only regret that people have about investing is not starting earlier the same could be said of building a network online working in public making people aware of what you're capable of is a hedge against you know any economic circumstance coming down the pipe short of you know complete armageddon <laughs> Yeah, and what I can't get out of my head was just the idea that you had this quote that you wanted to look up and you just type some things into a machine and then right. it, it just and then it just made you so much smarter to the point where you had the exact quote right in front of you. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. think we really understand and like we stop to think about how much the internet makes us smarter like you get perfect directions wherever you go and you just pull it up and then you become right. as smart as the directions you get perfect quotes you get per and it's and it's like this is all available to us because other people have put into the network i don't know man it just it blows my mind honestly it's incredibly overwhelming it's overwhelming i think honestly it's uh you know it just increases your choices to not even what is the there's some mental model about the like the pap the uh paralysis of choice yeah so it's really hard to narrow your focus to the point where you can uh, pick from a number of choices that's actually moving you forward as opposed to you know the internet just serves you up in some cases like the exact information you need but in other cases like 500,000 things you don't need depending on what your goals are right so there's a there's a huge upside to it but it's very easy to get caught in the undercurrent of it as well yeah so what that makes me think of is just the idea of the internet is providing endless distractions and so what I'm curious about for you personally is how do you do deep work what do you, is there anything you do to make sure that you carve out time to have it and so talk to me a little bit about that so 
One of the things I think I learned in my agency career about myself is that I thrive under pressure. So the idea of a deadline is, I wish this wasn't the case, and I'm sure everybody that has the same disposition feels the same as I do, but my ability to execute when like I'm, you know, it's life or death situation is like no other. So in the case of a client meeting, my like the window of execution is always like exactly the amount of time I need before I meet with someone, I'll get something done. Like I'm not the type of person who's like, you know, 10 days before something needs to happen. I'm there like, you know, chugging away on it unless it has some component that requires 10 days of lead time. Uh, I'm like almost in that, uh, this for the same way on, on the product launches, the idea of launching a product before it's ready has been an enormous source of pressure and inspiration. So this is going to be ready on this date, pre-order it. And as soon as like one person has given you a dollar to receive something, the amount of responsibility you feel to execute properly on that is, you know, in my case at least, is, incred- is an incredible motivator and driver. And that has been, you know, again, my wife hates this about me is like the idea that I'm executing with like very small margin for error is, uh, you know, most people don't like that at all. But I, uh, I think that's played a huge part. And then just to answer the other side of that equation, like the way I've designed the business is kind of, is kind of, um, reflective or tailored to the things that I um, like that I can do without pressure on the other side. So like so much of what this uh, the engine of this business comes from organic content. And I don't have um, I, I started the business this way where I'd have like, you know, I'd wake up one hour of reading, two hours of writing, you know, the you know, the LinkedIn routine. Uh, you know, I do this, this and this in this order. I did that for a good six months to like dig myself out of a very bad hole that I left like personally in uh, my routine as an agency owner, where it was just like, you know, round the clock distraction, client driven requests and had no control over my time. So my response to that was like, I'm going to structure my day on a like minute by minute basis. And then, you know, slowly over time, I got away from that because the structure of the business changed to the point where I could do that, right? You have a product that uh, is just sitting there and it relies on your ability to produce organic content. So this is really just like waiting for inspiration, wandering around, idea comes in your head, pull your phone out your pocket, write something up. Um, There's an idea in that almanac of Naval's that says inspiration is perishable, act on it immediately. And I find that to be pretty true. So if um, there's either there either needs to be some instant source of inspiration to carry something or a looming sense of absolute failure and pressure to execute. You mentioned that you leave such a small window for error. And, and so talk to me about a situation in which you have committed an error or you have made a mistake and, and how you've dealt with it. I'm really curious about that. So, 
Yeah, so a great example is the last product we launched is called Build Once, Sell Twice. It's a, like a productization playbook, an online training program. And I'd, like, I'd started work on this maybe a month before it launched because it was like really a download of all the ideas and things that I've been doing over the last 18 months. I had like cue cards and very much like a, when inspiration struck, it's like write a chapter or write a little piece of it. And um, then the execution under pressure was really the like loading it into the platform, right? Making the actual product. And again, uh, I was like, oh yeah, we just do it on the day, right? Or the day before and uh, had all this material ready to go and built out this whole thing where uh, we had, a, I mean, we'd taken, I don't know, maybe six figures in pre-order, um, in pre-orders, and this thing is supposed to be automatically sent out at you know, 3 p.m. PST or something, which is noon EST at the time, we're living in New York. And uh, I was loading it into this platform, and I realized with like 45 minutes to go, I was like, oh man, this, uh, it's like a nuanced feature of the platform that you can't create two, uh, you can't have these two separate environments. So anybody who joined this course would have come in and like complete, like um, mingled with a completely different course and just completely ruined the, the product that we'd already built. So with like 45 minutes to go, we have to call the, uh, the, um, the product to the platform company and be like, Oh, can, can you help us fix this? And they're like, no, sorry, you can't, you can't, um, the, the, the product doesn't work that way. You're going to have to start again. So we have to <laughs> like literally delete the whole thing and start over again, push the deadline back like three or four hours. And, and when you're in that situation, you're like, Oh my God, everybody's going to be so, uh, frustrated. And you know, the, the leniency that people have is, I would say in general, it's way higher than you anticipate it to be. I'm like, worst case scenario forecaster a lot of the time. I think there's a healthy amount of paranoia that I can sometimes overstep, but people are so forgiving of things like that. So in the moment, I'm like, this is an absolute disaster, but really, you know, just three extra hours and you click one button and delay something and an email goes out and then three hours later, everybody's, everybody's um, in there. But just to add one point on that as well, like one of the things that's like the most brutal things about building digital products, in my opinion, is waiting for that first round of feedback on a product because you're just letting hundreds of people into this thing and you have no idea how it's going to be received. I've done like, you know, really small trusted groups of friends and, and had people look at it and I'm, I trust these people, but at the same time, I know that they're, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether they're telling me, um, being as brutal as they could be. And like those first like 24 or 48 hours is like nerve wracking that you've, um, you know, you've taken people's money and you want to make sure that what they get out of this is by far exceeds what you promised them. And, you know, touch wood to date, that has been the case, but that's uh, by far the most nerve wracking part of it. I totally agree. And, and what you said about people being forgiving, it makes me think about just you earn that trust, right? And you, mm -hmm. you continue to produce such quality content and people trust you and they're like, oh, he, he has, is having problems uploading, you know? And so right. people are quick to be like, oh, that makes sense. That's okay. Whereas if someone wasn't trustworthy, they wouldn't even bother giving them money in the first place. So it makes complete sense. And to your other point about, you know, getting feedback 
it's really interesting because when you create things online, you're really putting a piece of yourself online and you don't know what people are going to say about it. You might enjoy it. You might like it, but it's not until mm-hmm. you get that feedback, that first round of feedback where you could really just say, okay, I produced something good. And like, um, I'll never forget, I, I, I was working on this podcast for a month and then I release it and I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know if people are mm-hmm. going to like it. And then you get the reviews of people loving it. It's like, wow, that was really worth it. Like, you know, and it feels so good. Like you really, you lived up to the expectations you set for yourself and other people set for you as well. Yeah, it's incredible. It reminds me of a, it's, I mean, it's kind of on the same, along the same lines, but there's a, uh, like a metaphor or an anecdote in this book I just read around how comedians will do a tour of like really small comedy venues for three or four months before they record a Netflix special. So you go out and you tell 50 jokes a night in these tiny clubs where there's only a few people and nobody can use their phone or whatever else. And you see what lands. And this process is essentially helping you compile like, you know, all of the bangers for your Netflix special. It's really um, interesting parallel there with things like Twitter as a platform where you share ideas and you see how they resonate. And it really gives you a signal as to, okay, if I have these 20 ideas that I know resonated really well, I can kind of thread those together into this curriculum that really explains the journey that I've been on. And you know a lot of that stuff is going to land because you already have that validation on the front end. You're just getting it in piecemeal. Absolutely. Um, So kind of switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you specifically about your products and you've been pretty open and honest with how much you're making and the revenue that's coming in. So my mm-hmm. question is why have you been so willing to put out your revenue numbers and did you ever have a period where you said to yourself, ah, maybe I shouldn't or yeah, just talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I think one of the amazing things about all of the um, all of the information available online and all of the incredible mentors that you can um, you know that you can find uh, their writing their experience their autobiography whatever it might be it's very like it's very inspiring but it doesn't kind it doesn't it rarely brings you down to the tactical level right it's more of you know, something that has been developed over the course of 20, 30 years and remains true across, you know, like a, a venture investor's experience of building a hundred companies. Me reading that as like somebody who's just getting started is like, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, this is great advice, but how does it apply to me? And how, like, what does that actually look like when it's applied? So part of the reason of sharing it early on was just, you know, for, the, the lack of it that I experienced when I was first building and the desire to create some transparency and motivation around that stuff. So I think proof of work translates there too. It's like, I'm, I'm, if I'm selling a product that is, um, that I'm espousing my ability to create value, then 
proving that ability is important to me as well. So that is definitely one of the reasons. It's another component of the proof of work piece. And uh, the other reason is just essentially like you can do this too, right? Like if you're in a situation I was in and you weren't able to like break that time money barrier, uh, I went through a bunch of like very dumb iterations of my business to try and make it um, serve me the way I wanted it to and I failed a bunch of times and every time I talked about the things that people aren't comfortable talking about whether that's money or whether that's failing or whether that's like having a bust up with your partner because you said you were you know you said x was going to happen and it didn't happen every single time I think you go into those like almost taboo subjects that aren't like readily discussed in corporate America or you know in society as a whole you just get more attention as a result. So it's kind of a feedback loop based on doing it once and people being like, okay, tell me more. I think money is also universally interesting to people because everybody has a vision for what they would do with money, right? It's like universally appealing. So I think that plays another part in that, um, in that feedback loop. And yeah, there's definitely periods of being uncomfortable with it just based on, um, when you have like an outlandishly good, uh, month or something it's like is this you know is like me continuing to do this over and over again is that like still helpful or is it just you know being um like does it get discouraging at a certain point when you're mm -hmm. you know in a different um category after a period of time sorry it's my dog you're good you're um, good the joy of living in a suburban home there's a guy like outside doing pest control Stuff like that happening in the middle of the day. But yeah, I got some time, man. Hit me. Okay, cool. Uh, where were you? I, I, I completely forgot. What were you talking about last? Uh, what were we talking about? Um, sharing revenue numbers. Yes. You were, you were in the middle of saying something, in the middle of saying a point. Do you want to finish that? or? I forget what I was saying. I think the idea that... Um, the constant evaluation of the, of whether or not you continue mm. to share, I think is, you know, you, I'm constantly thinking about how appropriate it is or how helpful it is at different times. Um, the idea that, you know, the company doesn't grow at a specified rate month over month. There's like dips and failures and things that didn't work. And when I take my foot off the gas, then obviously there's a, that's reflected in the numbers. So I think the story, um, I think it's a really important part of the story, especially if you're trying to convince people of the opportunity they have to do something similar. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so how have you thought about, you know, like sharing those numbers at, have you said to yourself, okay, if I hit, you know, X number, then I'm not going to share. Have you had that conversation with yourself yet, or, or is it something that mm. you're, you're just waiting for? I don't for, think so. Yeah, I think I'm going to keep sharing it. Honestly, I think mm -hmm. um, again, it's really fascinating to me that, and bizarre to me, honestly, that there is not thousands of people in uh, like doing the exact same thing. I think it's very. It's just a very. We're living in a very interesting time where in the next couple of years, it feels like this is um, a behavior or a, uh, um, 
just a, a way of working that is going to become a lot more common. I think you're seeing that on like indie hackers and people that are building software companies and just in general companies being far more transparent about how they work and how they make a living and uh, that to me is a trend that is only going to increase in uh, velocity. And do you think that's because people are just <laughs> do you think that's because people are just starving for authenticity and starving for the realness of what is? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, there's obviously no shortage of people out there telling you you can do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you can build an internet business. It's going to make you a million bucks overnight. And you know, so many people just can't stand behind some of the concepts that they're teaching. And I think breaking that spell as well and trying to um, trying to be authentic to the extent it gets uncomfortable for you. I think that's when you really start to help people. Mm, that's interesting. So before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about a quote and the quote is from Pat Riley and it's something that you've illustrated in the past and it's excellence is the gradual result of always striving to do better. And so how do you practice excellence? So I think this is, I mean, it's a huge question. I think the idea of uh, a lot of the concepts that we've talked about, proof of work, building in public, gives you a really great opportunity and uh, like a forced um, environment with which to do that in. So the idea that, uh, you know, the brand visualized value gives me like a canvas to continually improve upon. I've set these like very narrow creative constraints in black and white images, wherever it may be that forces me to get more creative in order to continue to, uh, produce content. So those constraints play a huge role in, um, in kind of forcing me to think more creatively. Makes sense. Makes complete sense. All right, Jack. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you for the past hour. It's flown by. And tell everyone where they could find you on the internet. Sure. So uh, Twitter is your best bet, at Jack Butcher. And then from there, you can get to Visualize Value. Uh, if you're on Instagram, uh, at Visualize Value. And uh, same back at you mate i appreciate the conversation uh flew by sorry about the, the dog interruptions there but it was a good time that was my conversation with jack butcher if you enjoyed this conversation let me know on twitter at hey danny miranda i really appreciate you guys listening truly truly from the bottom of my heart and i'll see you guys in the next one